Well, without any further ado, we start discussing the acceptance house, but I put it in the context of the uh, second greatest miracle. So we continue the story of the miller and the baker. Many years have gone by, but the miller and the baker couldn't remove the bitterness over the incident when they were blacklisted at the discount house. They felt that this was unjust, they were made victims unjustly, they considered themselves as the misunderstood innovator. <laughs> so they were plotting to take revenge. Their opportunity came when the manager of the discount house died, leaving his business to the elder of his two sons. And there was another son who was known by the nickname Prodigal. He didn't inherit the business because his father didn't consider him good enough for that, but he did inherit his share of the family fortune, which he spent in no time. Now the miller and the baker moved in to befriend him. They wanted to make him part of their conspiracy. Your inheritance is more valuable than you realize. If you, could, if you had eyes to see your fortune, the baker told Prodigal. Your name is spelled in gold. Let me show you how you can span it. You should start a business of your own. But Prodigal pleaded poverty. He has already spent his patrimony. He could not put up the capital. Never mind capital, retorted the miller. We shall teach you a new creative way to start a business with no capital. The young man may have been prodigal, but he was not stupid. Why don't you start your own business if you know how to do it without capital? He asked. The baker explained in very quiet voice. You need a name with a high recognition value, and you have that. Prodigal was a member of this very famous mer merchant family that has been in business for over 200 years, the last 50 of which in this counting. The name was impeccable and enjoyed the respect and admiration of everybody. You contribute your name and we contribute the expertise. The baker cajoled him. You don't even have to work if you don't want to. 
we give you 50% of the profits. My friend, the miller, and I will be satisfied with 25 each. The offer was too good to turn down. The enterprise, in quotation marks, was called the acceptance house. It was concocted by the baker. The acceptance house would take business turned down by the discount house. It would endorse, or to use the resurrected term, accept any bill, any bill presented to it, provided the two conditions were met. Number one, the bill should have an air of respectability in referring to some goods about to be shipped. For this reason it was called an anticipation bill. Well, if later the anticipated movement didn't take place, well, that's just too bad. It was going to give respectability to the bill if some kind of merchandise, some kind of movement was involved. The second condition was that the face value of the bill should be posted as collateral security in the form of mortgages on real estate or bonds or some other acceptable security. The acceptance house was entitled to liquidate the collateral in case of a default by the drawer of the bill, but would return it upon payment of the bill, of the bill in full at maturity. In addition, the, accept, the acceptance house stood ready to roll over the credit facility indefinitely upon advance mutual agreement. So that was the back door which started the dishonest uh, and fraudulent trade in bills. Now the operators of the acceptance house were in the position to bilk the general public out of his funds by taking advantage of the positive spread between the rate of interest and the discount rate. Was it was too tempting. You wanted to take advantage of that. In effect, the operators of the, of the acceptance house were selling bills and buying bonds with the proceeds, pocketing the difference between the higher interest rate and the lower discount rate. At any rate, that's what they were planning to do. And for quite some time they got away with it. Now, I want to go back for a moment to the construction of a bill in the 
uh, way it was supposed to be. Uh, in the case, for example, of the Miller and the Baker, the Miller delivered the flour to the baker and built him. So he was the drawer of the bill. The miller was the drawer. The baker was the acceptor of the bill because he had to accept it, which means that it was a promise to pay on maturity a definite sum and uh, the bill also described the nature of the business, the quantity, quality of the merchandise which was being shipped. So you see, the two signatures were absolutely important in order to make this bill valid and acceptable for circulation. The drawer, who was supposed to be paid at the end of the period, and the acceptor, whose responsibility it was to pay. So now the idea was that the acceptance house could step into the shoes of the acceptor. So now anybody who wanted to uh, replenish his funds out of constructing bills, even those who did not have the name and the credit and the, uh, were not known as responsible people, so the signature was not worth very much, they could just go to the acceptance house and pretend some kind of a commercial exchange, commercial business, and the acceptance house, which had a good name, it had a high name recognition, it had everything going for it, would rent out the good signature for a shady business. That's what was involved. And that's why it was called acceptance house, because it would accept literally anything. Because it was not worried about the failure of the underlining business, because if the worst comes to worst, they just uh, would grab the collateral and liquidate it, and they got first call on the proceeds. And they made sure insisting on double the face value, they made sure that they will be able to satisfy themselves out of the proceeds if there was a forced liquidation. So that was the idea. And if you think of it, you will realize that apart from the crookedness, it was a brilliant idea. If you can sell your signature, why shouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> so th this was one type of bill which came to be called anticipation bill. There was no real enterprise, th sorry, there was no real transaction involved, but you can always pretend that you would love to do it if you could and you just couldn't, so anyhow, you need the 
money for some entirely different purposes. You did not have any intention of doing what the face of the bill said that you would be doing with the money. So that was the anticipation bill. But there was another type of bill, fraudulent. These are fraudulent bills, you see, because they are lying on the face of it. The other one was called accommodation bill. You see, the essence of the bill of exchange is that saleable goods, consumer goods in high demand, are moving to the place where there is a ready demand and market for them. And the reason for making the bill payable at a later date was to allow time for shipping, disposal, and including uh, the time needed for uh, getting the proceeds of the sale. The act of acceptance makes the bill of exchange immediately negotiable or convertible into cash through discounting. The bill had the advantage of paying itself. That's a real bill. That's a valid, honest-to-goodness real bill, which is paying itself at maturity. Another expression for that, which is important, and I will have uh, occasion to use it later, self-liquidating credit. The credit involved has to do with clearing, so actually there is a maturing merchandise, and uh, the passage of the maturing merchandise from one hand to the next gives occasion to clearing and at the end of the process the bill matures into gold coin and that will pay. So the bill liquidates itself. It does not need anything else than what is described on its face. And since uh, in the normal course of events, the, there will be no hitch, and there shouldn't be, because we are assuming that the consumer is going to consume, and that's just part of the uh, process of supplying the consumer with consumption. For that reason, it is going to liquidate itself. And, and just compare this to a bond, uh, which is certainly not self-liquidating because it, it depends on quite a number of circumstances and it involves a much longer term than a bill would in order to mature. So that's the essence of the bill. Real goods, saleable goods move fast enough to the consumer. That's the uh, sense of bill trading. The anticipation bill promoted by the acceptance house was very different. The underlying goods did not move if they existed at all. And if they did exist, usually they were held for speculation, speculative purposes, as the example we have already discussed in the morning. There's only a vague understanding that the goods, if they existed, eventually 
uh, reach the consumer, but probably only after several uh, rollovers, which was, as I emphasize and emphasize it again, was a no-no. It's an absolute uh, uh, condition for the scheme to work that for no reason whatsoever should a bill at maturity be rolled over or extended for another period. And this was a scheme to contravene that uh, provision. The sale of merchandise to the ultimate cash-paying consumer by maturity could no longer be taken for granted. Because that's not what the nature of the transaction was. It was all very vague and conditional and, and so on. So it was just a pretext trying to conform to the good real bill, trying to imitate it, take advantage of its almost essential nature. The, the, by the time bill circulation reached this highly developed state, society came to depend on it. If you withdrew this facility, there would have been difficulties in getting the consumer good in time. You see, there's a timing element here in, in financing the highly the consumer goods in high demand through bills. There's a timing because you calculate at what time how much bread or cloth, cloth or what have you will be needed and you construct the bill accordingly that it should mature about the same time. So if you throw the monkey wrench into the works, then the consumer will suffer because he cannot be supplied seamlessly and smoothly with uh, much needed consumer goods. So not only that it could no longer be taken granted that the bill will liquidate itself. Quite to the contrary, it was a foregone conclusion that the anticipation bill uh, would have to be redrawn and redrawn again in, at the end of the 91-day uh, period. That redrawing bills was a at the very least a very dubious practice as already pointed out by Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations. He does uh, have uh, a say about that. Now, bad as the accommodation, sorry, bad as the anticipation bills were, even worse were the so-called accommodation bills. Because these are bills drawn on an entirely fictitious uh, situation in which non-existent goods were shipped in the bottom of non-existent boats 
and sold to non-existing consumers at the end of the period. This was all just a pretense. There was nothing real about it. There wasn't even a hope or expectation. You couldn't explain it this way, that after all we had the good intention but things turned out differently. It was fraudulent from the moment of conception. But the impeccable name of the acceptance house and the family standing behind it made these bills as good as cash, just like the other ones. Because in the bill market and in the fast uh, trading uh, of these bills, a lot of people didn't scrutinize everything with magnifying glass and check against uh, schedules of uh, both departures and arrivals and all that. They just did the transaction and treated the bill as cash. The good name of the acceptance house made it sure that they will get paid at maturity and they were get getting paid because the anticipation, the acceptance house made it sure that in the worst scenario case they could liquidate uh, the collateral security and make the payment without a hitch. So the uh, public at large didn't even realize if the uh, um, if one party to this fraudulent business went bankrupt. Didn't even realize that because the uh, collateral was sold and the acceptance house was uh, paid and had the funds to pay the bill and maturity so that uh, this whole thing was kept in the dark. There was no transparency to this. It was just a conspiracy. That's that's all you can say. So the accommodation bill uh, was the utterly uh, dishonest form and the distortion of the uh, the uh, uh, real bill trading, which, as I emphasized, was essential for the smooth functioning of the economy, because these are the most urgently demanded. Uh, consumer goods which were financed and then uh, the uh, uh, the uh, uh, crooks came in and took advantage of the situation and started spoiling. So actually it did happen, we must be ready to admit it that certain acceptance houses in the end got a, a bad name. They had a good name to begin with and they may have even survived for a long time, perhaps several generations, uh, perhaps as long as a hundred years, but then eventually they ran into trouble. We'll, we'll have more to say about that. So this was a debauchery, a, a, a good scheme, a wonderful 
scheme was spoiled by destroyers who enter and want to take advantage of a situation for their own private purposes. And I might as well admit that the legal uh, backing of this business was not drawn up with the greatest caution and uh, pre uh, and greatest uh, care. Care, as but a lot of fees must have gone into this. Yeah, yeah. But in other words, uh, perhaps a lot of this could have been avoided if. Uh, because there was, to be sure, legislation. The, you know, you couldn't just write any kind of bill. It had to conform to certain patterns, which was fixed in legislation. In some countries, for instance, in my country, in Hungary, you even had to buy a stamp and affix it to the bill in order to be valid. So the government had a little bit of income. It wasn't a very high. Uh, value stamp, but there was a stamp to give it extra credibility. The government stamp is on it, so it must be good. And uh, so there was legislation, there were certain provisions, what to do, how to do it, what kind of penalty would be meted out by the courts if somebody violated this or that. But that was not sufficient because the crooks could get around. Now, banking has grown out of two separate routes, as I have mentioned in the morning. The business of the goldsmith, which matured into the discount house, and the other one was the acceptance house, which we are talking about now. And that's the bad guy. Here is a conspiracy between the borrower and the acceptance house with ready access to the bill market, you see. The acceptance house was not risking its own money. The acceptance house could be run on a very small capital. It was turning its good name into cash. In, you can say that, but as far as capital is concerned, it didn't need very much and it was not put at risk because of the provision of collateral. So that's the bad guy, the acceptance house. It's a conspiracy. Uh, the borrower conspired with the acceptance house. They lied, they constructed, pretended to construct a real bill, which it wasn't. They made false statements, etc., etc. And worse, of all, they rolled over maturing uh, bills. And this was introducing the seed of destruction into the system because this is what it is not prepared to this kind of demand. The bill market is unable and was not meant to satisfy. So this was a practice of shortchanging the public because it, uh, the risk was shifted to the public invisibly because this was not transparent. This was not, uh, a public could not 
uh, scrutinize it. They withheld information, vital information, uh, from the public. Uh, or at least uh, th those uh, accountants and so on were not put on the job who should have overseen. I mean, uh, I'm not saying that an accountant wouldn't have been able to f find the fraud. Sure, but the, the, there was an implicit trust because of the earlier success of the real bill trading and they just wanted to uh, press it for all it was worth for their own advantage. So the banks couldn't care less how the borrowers would eventually get the money to uh, repay their loans because they had the collateral and in case of trouble they could satisfy themselves and that was the uh, branch growing out of the acceptance business. The banks in fact usurped the monopoly uh, and they monopolized the social circulating capital. This is a helpful concept I thought and therefore I am happy to introduce it here too. The uh, social circulating capital as we discussed it yesterday was that uh, mass of of semi-finished goods and maturing goods which were finished but still on the way to the consumer which would be removed from the market in 91 days and uh, that is called social or was called social by Adam Smith because it, the ownership was a bit fuzzy and purposely so because the goods moved fast enough and the bills uh, were circulating fast enough so that the actual ownership at every moment in time was not really important. The important thing was that it was moving, it existed and the quality, quantity and so on and would disappear in 91 days in consumption. Um, doctor, when Adam Smith, he, he published the, uh, um, his piece on money in 1776, did he discuss the uh, acceptance houses and accommodation? I think he did. he did. Now, the terminology varied. I okay. think I mentioned this, that he was not using consistent terminology, terminology. which is, uh, uh, makes it a little more difficult to read and follow. But the basis, see, what I've seen, and this is where I'm beginning to, to realize there's a difference, is that, I mean, I've read that people to, uh, consider capitalism to have started with his treatise, okay, the well, money or whatever it was, in 1776. Mm -hmm. And obviously the real bill circulated before then. It may have been his treatise oh, yeah, on that. Yeah. And the uh, problem of banking, you know, I could I loosely have called modern banking, happened slightly before this time but was probably already in progress. And eventually supplanted everything, mm -hmm. isn't that what, it very essentially supplanted everything that Adam Smith considered to be capitalism. Mm -hmm. So to call Adam Smith 
the father of capitalism, which is today's present system, <laughs> is an absolute, ba you know, is, yeah. is, a, is a bastardization. Yeah, it is. It is. Because absolutely. There's so much bad that yeah. Adam Smith had was not yeah. responsible at all. On the contrary, yeah. he called the attention to the okay. fraudulent. He, he was very critical. Okay. For instance, uh, that's very clear that he opposed redrawing bills on the same unsold merchandise. If the merchandise was not sold by the end of the 91-day period, it meant that they shouldn't have, the bill shouldn't have been drawn in the first place. So you compound the first mistake by a second worst mistake to redraw the bill and try to finance the inventory of uh, the, uh, merchandise which is difficult to sell. That was the proof that the merchandise was not saleable enough, it wasn't moving fast enough to the that the, uh, it, it remained unsold and the bill couldn't, uh, couldn't be paid on time. So what we've got essentially is modern bankers uh, justifying themselves by the great work of a great man that applied to an entirely different system. That's right. Okay. That's right. Well, I'm, I'm not pretending that uh, Adam Smith treat, they gave the same treatment of this subject. No, as I'm, you're doing right now. Because it's you see, the time, yeah. uh, that's one thing. Yeah. But the other thing is that I, I am making certain simplifications sure. for the purpose which I have in mind. But, uh, but it's, it's a good reference and it's worthwhile reading. And, uh, it's not an easy reading because of the terminology and other things. But, and it's an old document, let's admit it, it's contemporary with the U.S. Constitution, right? We don't follow that. It's a living, <laughs> it's a living <laughs> document. Now here was another interesting aspect, why the fraud could be perpetuated. Because the scheme enjoyed a certain measure of support from the government. Uh, I'm not suggesting that the government was involved 100% in this fraud, but it, the, the government did not step in with the force it should have or could have early on to stop that practice. The, the, the thing is that the government made the banks exempt from certain provisions of contract law. <laughs> and, and the amazing thing is that this happened in most of the countries, as if they were conniving. As and I don't think they were okay. conniving. It's just they did that by instinct. Because the governments and the banks were like that. They sure. were supporting so each one other. another. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. That's another word for conniving. <laughs> yeah. Boy, really. So here it is. Here it is. Uh, the, gov the government gave privileges to banks, banking institutions, which it should have never given. And this introduced double standard in justice, and that's the worst kind of juridical mistake you can make. Because as soon as you have a double standard and the same crime, 
or misdemeanor you treat this way in the case of one individual and another way in case of another one then this is very demoralizing and people will start losing whatever respect they ever had for the law. So that's, that's uh, very bad and that's actually what the government did. The government exempted the banks from one particular provision of contract law. And this provision is that in case of non-performance, if one party to the contract fails to perform certain duties which the other party was promised, then the other party could press legal action to the extent of even uh, insisting on liquidation of the other firm. These are not firms, not individuals. You see, because by that time the uh, uh, joint stock company was an accepted and successful form of business organization. So there were two firms, they had a contract, the contract prescribed that by a certain date this uh, company A should perform something. If, if it failed, then the other could take it to court and insist for compensation even if that involved liquidating the other. You know, and then from the proceed, the, uh, the, uh, um, uh, the proceeds of the liquidation, the other company could be paid uh, compensation. Now in the case of the banks, this is very clear that most of these contracts were promises to pay money by a certain date. And if the bank failed to perform, then if there was no double standard, if there was no favoritism, if there was no uh, uh, on the part of the government there was no favoritism uh, to have the banks, then the creditor of the bank, which could be just a humble depositor or a banknote holder, could insist on the liquidation of the bank if the bank uh, failed to perform, you know? And not only that this did not happen, but the government actually rewarded those banks which frequently declared non-payment. Because what happened in such a case, the government stepped in and said, all right, from now on, for a limited time, it won't be the gold coin, but it will be the dishonored banknote which should serve for the purposes of ultimate means of payments. So not only that there was no punishment, and there, sh there should have been, if you wanted even-handed justice, should have been. The bank should, be should have been punished because it was run inefficiently, not necessarily fraudulently, but at least inefficiently, and therefore in case 
they failed to perform on the contract, it shouldn't be rewarded. Now, not only it wasn't punished, but it was rewarded because uh, the uh, uh, banknote, which was a dishonored piece of paper, so the worst kind of money you can imagine, discredited, dishonored, all that, now became the highest because the government insisted that uh, the public would suffer if the bank was allowed to go bust. That this is the too big to fail. But every bank was too big to fail. If the bank was chartered by the government, it was automatically too big to fail. So uh, if the bank cannot pay, the, uh, it has to be bailed out and, and its uh, notes should stay in circulation and be legal tender, you know. This is as bad as it can be, as bad as it can be. And, uh, and that's actually what happened. Now, as I say, I don't want to jump to the conclusion that the government uh, meant it that way, but it just listened to bad advice and that's how it evolved and evolved in most of the important countries that the banks got this preferential treatment, they got this uh, privilege which was absolutely not justified and uh, instead, you see there is a crime and punishment business here, right? If, if there's crime, there should be punishment. Now, if instead you reward crime, then how can you, uh, uh, what kind of the system are you building? I mean, that, then the seeds of destruction are planted and in good time it will hit back. And so that's actually what happened, which, is, which we should see very, very clearly. That uh, even if we assume that initially the bank had good intentions, the legal system was twisted in such a way that they had no incentive to avoid the uh, default. Because if default came, then the government declared a bank holiday and their uh, notes, which were dishonored and uh, defaulted, and so became legal tender with the force of the government. The government had the uh, policemen, the soldiers, and so on to enforce that people uh, should accept bad paper in payment. Promises which uh, failed to, to, to be uh, uh, met were uh, people had no choice, they just had to accept. So, so that's an important point, and I think we should mention it right here at the discussion of the acceptance business. Now, Professor, uh, can I uh, Yes, sure. You were saying that the acceptance house didn't really need a lot of capital to start up and keep going, so it never really needed to compete directly with the discount house. It never really needed to attract people who were looking to buy proper real bills or sell uh, proper real bills to um, uh, or, I mean, uh, um, uh, buy them themselves from, uh, from people who would sell them. It, so it never needed, the, the discount rate never would have been affected uh, by the activities of the acceptance sales. It would not have distorted the, the level of the discount rate, right? 
Well, uh, ultimately it probably was, but uh, at the beginning this contract was very low. Oh, that's right, actually, that's right. It would have, just, it would have distorted it later on. As oh, later on, yeah. sure, it was sure. Yeah, but to begin with, you are right, the, this contract was low enough, so the scheme, the successful scheme of bill circulation attracted imitators, and some of them were dishonest, as in the case. Now, I'm not suggesting there was a direct competition. However, as uh, I think I mentioned, that the acceptance house was attracting disappointed uh, customers of the discount house. The discount house had to be choosy because it wanted to. Uh, preserve the uh, honesty of the business. So they turned down lots of applicants who wanted credit for certain purposes and the discount house advised them to seek credit through other sources such as investment banks, not commercial banks but investment banks. And these people were disappointed. They thought that the discount house was not accommodating them where it should have. And then they uh, were happy to discover that there was a guy who didn't ask any questions. The credit was yours for the taking, provided you could post collateral. And even if you lie, and we know that you lie, we still give you the credit. You know, that, that kind of thing. All right, now, the uh, consequences of this conspiracy, one, declaring bankruptcy fraudulently by representing assets uh, at artificially low values, or its more com its common counterpart, the second one, window dressing in the balance sheet fraudulently in, a f in an effort to stave off a run on the bank by representing assets at artificially high values. Now I'm talking about the uh, accounting business. There were these two ways that twisting accounting rules, fraud could be committed. The accountants who examined the books of the bank, they uh, could find that uh, the bank might want to declare bankruptcy fraudulently by undervaluing assets. And there is the other case where they overvalue assets for window dressing purposes. Honest accounting demands that the bank carry assets either at historical cost or at market value, whichever is lower. And that's an ancient rule, going back to Luca Pacioli, who in the 13th century wrote the textbook on, on uh, uh, accounting, on double, double entry accounting. Luca Pacioli, an Italian who was, by the way, a mathematician. <laughs> and only as a second thought did he become an economist. 
<laughs> but very, right. you know, his name sure. survived yeah. a little while, and this is interesting, yeah. and not because of his mathematics, but <laughs> because of the caring. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, the government patent protecting the banks has resulted in permitting the banks to carry assets either at historical cost or at market value, whichever is higher. Just change one word. Whichever is lower, take out lower, put in higher. And bingo, we have another book for accounting. We changed the rules, but it's not as significant after all. One word was changed, so that's uh, neither here nor there. The, uh, and bingo, the business is on. But you know, by doing that, there was a need for to protect the banks because if the banks can put a higher value on the assets, and then they issue more liabilities, and something goes wrong with those liabilities, then. The, the the bank has to c close its doors, and if that's embarrassing, then the government will rush in and give the bank uh, permission to keep its doors open, even though it's insolvent. Not just illiquid. That's not a question. It's a question of solvency. And in our days and age, we have lots. Of Lots of examples of that. And it's so interesting to see that the government, uh, what the government is doing, is just diluting whatever strict rules should be applied to the banks. And, you know, and the banks should be allowed to fail. That's, that's, uh, uh, that's so elementary. That, and and uh, it's hard to imagine any more stupid than allowing a bank to survive because it's too big. You know, that's one reason that this bank should go first. Okay. The profession of chartered accountants and bank examiners, I'm involving bank examiners as well, not just accountants, uh, because they have very important uh, a role to play in this, to check the books and see that everything was fine. But uh, this profession ought to stand guard over the integrity of balance sheets and the quality of assets the banking industry has. But it has long since departed from this idea. Accounting codes and norms have been changed in order to suit the interest of the government and the banks, as opposed to the interest of the public at large. And, and I think this is very sad. The government should protect the interest of the public at large without distinction, and just what the government does is it has this favored industry, the banking industry, and uh, it's allowed to carry on an insolvent business. Is it true that you were talking about Japan yesterday and I, uh, reading the financial media, I could not get a straightforward answer, but it seems that the Japanese banks 
And at one time, I remember when it was the heyday of Japanese banking, the ten largest banks in and the so world were Japanese. Yes. Originally, they were Americans, Marcus. but they took over, and, and then they all, without exception, became Solid. brain dead. Yes, but they still open and kept in business by the government. The uh, this this is a, a travesty. Well. Travesty is a judgment. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't a tragedy. But what happened when the, the collapse of debt was so large in Japan in 1990, and it was exacerbated by the way the Japanese allowed their financial system to work, banks could own shares, they could own stocks as a part of their capital base, they could own pro property, anything. And the asset bubbles had gotten so huge in Japan that Japan loaned all over the world. I myself had a $400,000 line of credit from Japanese bank in 1988, right? And they just, because with, with an asset base that's exploding in value as a part of a bubble, because they could put anything in their asset base, you could loan 10 times that amount. And they did all over the world. When the bubble collapsed, they still had the outstanding obligation, the loans that were on the books, but their asset base disappeared. It was gone. It was up in smoke. Okay. And one would expect that the, you'd see a collapse of the banking industry, especially in Japan, and you didn't see it. And it was because the Japanese government and, and the Japanese uh, industry are really hand in hand, and they've mm -hmm. always have been. I mean, tighter than they are here. Here you had sort of a collusion of mm -hmm. interest. There, it's never so been. They don't they even they conceal. They don't, they don't even conceal it. It's just, that's the way it is. That they're operating on behalf of something bigger than themselves, which is basically just themselves. So, when they did collapse, the Japanese never had to account. Everybody knew they were insolvent. And nobody wanted to push the button. I mean, Everyone had loans on these people. They didn't want to go, hey, uh, Mitsubishi or whatever these banks were with, you know, Sanwa or whatever these large banking establishments. They, they didn't want to say, hey, you guys are way over your limit. They didn't want those loans withdrawn. I mean, they were floating. Bad paper out there was still going around. The fact that it wasn't backed by anything didn't matter. The paper was still out there. So no one ever did call the Japanese banks to test. To this day, we don't know. If the Japanese, we don't know. No, we don't know. Don't know. We don't know. They may have, in the intervening 18 years, collected enough to cover their losses, but those losses are huge, and no one knows. They've never even called a task. Huh? Well, I can give you another example which could, where we do know, and it can be demonstrated because the records are in the public domain. In. Uh, in 1933, when the United States defaulted on its gold obligation domestically, some foreign gold obligations were honored and some others were not. I know that, for instance, in the case of Philippines, which at that time was still an American colony, uh, they, the uh, American government honored the original $20 gold price, whereas some other uh, country got only uh, gold at the rate of th 35 per ounce. So you see, this is what happened, but I would say uh, most important countries such as England, France, 
Italy, etc., uh, were given paper or gold at the reduced rate. Mm. You see? Now, now, as a result, oh, I'm sorry, I, I have to change the story slightly because it happened earlier and the United States at that time was not involved. Let's go back two years earlier, 1931, and the defaulting country was Britain. And the Bank of England closed the gold window and the, the other countries were told uh, that uh, you won't get the gold or if you insist on gold you will get less gold than the contract called for. So I have to apologize to the United States. This It happened, uh, you know, some dirty business, but uh, the thing which I can demonstrate because I have the references is this earlier episode in 1931 in September the Bank of England uh, to use the euphemism went off gold went off gold <laughs> but in plain English this man defaulted on its contracts so there it was, the uh, Bank of France, the Central Bank of France, suffered enormous losses. <coughs> they were not prepared for that. Nobody was prepared for that. It was unthinkable that the Bank of England would, would uh, they, you know, may raise interest rates or they may have a moratorium, but to outright to default was unthinkable. So. Uh, the Bank of France had a large uh, reserve held in British pounds and uh, as a consequence of the default they suffered a loss and they, the accountants didn't know what to do with it how to, you know, so what they did was, they, uh, this was just the first step to show that they were absolutely desperate and they tried any crazy scream, scheme, they ran upstairs and downstairs in the building and looked at desks and glasses and ink pots and everything and put a higher value on it hoping that in the end when you add them up you will have some excess assets, <laughs> assets to cover the loss which they suffered. Uh, well, and that's, you know, I can demonstrate. I'm not making it up. I know where I read it, a credible source, and uh, at that time, of course, it, governments had a harder time to cover up such uh, tricks as this. So this is what they did and then of course they put a higher value on the building and uh, forgot uh, to depreciate this or that when it was time for, uh, for it to depreciate and so on. And it was still not enough. So in the end what they did was the uh, government of France very reluctantly and grudgingly uh, issued uh, what's the word non-marketable bonds and gave it to the Bank of France so that they could put it 
in the balance sheet so the loss disappears. But of course this was just hocus pocus. No, they were, the bonds were not marketable. So it's not <laughs> <laughs> How could you mark something like that in the market? <laughs> now, to, to my uh, memory, that was the first instance of that. And of course the thing was repeated any number of times since 1931 in the United States, since 1933, uh, after the war in 1947, 1968, and then of course Milton Friedman came to the rescue of these poor guys up high up in the hierarchy because Milton Friedman said, look, all you have to do is to float the dollar and bingo the loss disappears it's just a natural thing what markets would do they would fluctuate isn't it that's all so why worry about covering a loss you don't have to and even if you want to you can the government can always make a non-marketable issue of its bonds and give it to the central bank and everything will be happy and then the, everybody will live forever after. So, it just occurred to me yesterday when I was listening to you that perhaps that's what happened in Japan. The loss disappeared because the Bank of Japan issued some non-marketable bonds to put in the port to plug the hole in they, the balance sheet. They, they could have. What we do know is that no one has ever really asked. <laughs> you know, at least if they have asked, we don't know, we don't know. who it was mm -hmm. and we don't know what the answer is because none of those institutions went under. Some were absorbed, some were, you know, after years had to declare, you know, I mean these are huge real estate losses that have never been made up. Enormous. Now the same, the same problem. But, uh, sorry. Uh, I was going to say, you notice you have to change the accounting rules first. The historical value of these bonds was what's written on them, and their market value is zero. So you pick them, you, you keep them in the books at the higher value, not the lower. They, but they don't. The other way it wouldn't work, would it? <laughs> That's not what they do. Okay. Now, floating, uh, floating the dollar, allowing the dollar to float, that didn't solve the problem in 1979-80, because there, the high interest rates blew the hole, I think, as you said in one of your essays, in the bank's balance sheet. So there, now, were, they able, were the governments able to do the same thing again, just issue non-marketable bonds and say, we'll just make up whatever damage was done by the rising interest rates uh, to the bank bond portfolios? Am, am, I, following the, am I following the logic of that uh, problem, right? Uh, you want it's, to comment on that? It's a slightly different yeah. problem. I think Nathan is asking, um, was this the, was this the uh, way, did, did this solve the problem of the, uh, when the U U.S. floated the bonds, I mean went no, off no, and floated the, the currency, when they floated the dollar. Floated the dollar, dollar. bonds. Yeah, when they floated the dollar. You, you were talking yeah. about instances when we still did have a tie to the gold standard before uh -huh. Uh, 1971, yeah. 73. Uh -huh. But after the after there was no tie to the gold standard whatsoever, the banks still had the same problems, uh, particularly 1979, 80, when with inflation, 20% yeah. interest rates spiked, or what they the, the value of the bonds portfolio. in the right. banks' portfolios uh, took a huge uh, hit, and so there would have been a huge hole in the banks' balance sheets again. But this time, not because of a fixed gold standard, but because of 
of the interest rates. So I'm wondering, was it the same solution maybe that the governments did, simply printing up non-marketable bonds and giving them to the banks and saying, here, I'm, I'm talking the private sure. banking sector now, not, sure, not, the, the, uh, not central. the central banks, although it would have been the same, uh, would have been the same effect. Uh, but of course the situation was uh, actually more complicated because originally the European governments did not want to follow the dollar down. They wanted to keep the value of the currency. And then they found out that uh, the, their export industry would suffer greatly if they insisted that, for instance, the French franc or the Deutsche Mark and so on stayed at the same level. And uh, therefore the governments caved in and uh, said, well, we just follow the dollar down. And now it's very interesting because right at this moment the history is repeating itself because the dollar has gone down and the big brave talk comes from Brussels because that's where now the head of the European that we are not going to follow the dollar but that's the same thing they said since 71 we are going to the increase interest rates when the US is decreasing them and uh, it's very interesting because I am willing to predict for one that this is they are going to eat their words as they did in yeah. 1971. They will look at their export picture and they say, well, we can't let these export industries, after all, they are our friends, aren't they? So we can't <laughs> let them down. We just have to dilute our own currency, in this case the euro, and the euro will fall too. It, it just takes a little time for them to wake up and see that this... Yes? I think this first bite has already been taken. Trichet's latest commentary was, well, we're not going to raise because the European economy is not growing as fast as we predicted, and maybe recession or the um, inflation is not quite as high. So they are going to lower following the Americans. No question. They already, they already froze the, the rise. They will not raise them now. The European rates, euro rates, and the argument of Europe is absolutely right. And it, it, the latest pronouncement from them, from Trichet, was no. there. He shifted the emphasis. Yeah, in the 1930s, the the word was competitive currency devaluation. In 1971, the word was still competitive currency devaluation. Now. I am not so naive to believe that in 2008 the word is something different, that the Europeans stand up against the dollar and show those uh, crooks in, uh, in, in uh, Washington that we can deal honestly through I, I just don't believe that. So the word is still competitive uh, currency devaluations and this is dictated by the need in our modern world excuse me the export industry is extremely important for the national economy 
and they are not going to make the sacrifice just to be honest and besides honesty comes uh, a long time ago and with this they wouldn't restore honesty to the system it would take a much more drastic uh, reform than that so so they are not going to keep the value of the euro or any other currency high uh, and uh, I don't know about China that's a different case uh, and uh, even uh, you know it's very dangerous to guess what China will do because they, they are very enigmatic and they don't want you to uh, to uh, second guess what I never knew what my parents were, gonna, were thinking no. <laughs> now, the Japanese are far more yeah. predictable Very because predictable. they are actually under the thumb of the U.S. Yeah. Treasury and so are the Germans and so on. So, there it is. I think that we are going to see this competitive currency devaluation continue and uh, there is one logical outcome of this that all the currencies all the paper currencies are going to go to zero I cannot predict how long it will take uh, some people say it will take a couple of years some people say it will take a couple of decades uh, I am more inclined to say that it may take up to a decade probably not more than that and I wouldn't be surprised if I was wrong and it would take shorter but one thing is certain as the value of these currencies is diminishing not only that the problem is not solved but the problem is even aggravated yeah. And therefore, if you really want to press the logical outcome of this, and that's what I said in my latest contribution to, on the internet, that the logic of the situation will lead these countries to bid for gold, and they know that the only way they can do this successfully, because that currency won't buy any anymore, the gold price is going to go higher and higher. And what will happen is that they will open their mint to gold and just compete with each other that way. So whoever opens the mint to gold first will have an advantage. And the United States is, at the moment, looks as the last to recognize this. But some countries have already recognized it, like Russia, like China, like Argentina, to some extent Brazil, maybe others there. Uh, I think this Swiss uh, auction of gold was a hoax. They, you know, they use timing in such a way to, to give the impression to the rest of the world that they are still selling gold. But I think they have long ago stopped that and uh, they just shuffle dates or something. I don't know what they do. Uh, but but uh, you would expect the Bank of Switzerland to be far more conservatively than these silly announcements. Uh, Return. So actually, we deviated from our agenda. I don't mind that, but uh, let me round off what I 
had to say, and then if you have more comments, I would certainly welcome it. Uh, so crime and punishment, I mentioned this already. This is a world of crime and punishment. The crime of illicit interest arbitrage cannot avoid receiving its just punishment eventually. And I've used the uh, term illicit interest arbitrage yesterday when I explained that the gap between the interest rate and the lower discount rate is an attraction for crooks to come in and do arbitrage, pretending that this is legitimate and this is uh, economically helpful. But it is not. I hope you are convinced about that after I have had to say so far in, in uh, this course. And uh, therefore, we have to call this arbitrage illicit interest arbitrage. Uh, what it means is that you sell the bill, the low discount rate, and uh, buy the bond, the higher interest rate. And that means that, yeah, of course. It's understood that in the meantime you've got to roll over your exposure in the bill market several times. I mean, it's not as simple as that. But this, uh, the basic idea is simple enough. You want to pocket the difference between the two rates without performing any useful service. In fact, doing a lot of harm to the system. But uh, technically it's not as simple because uh, the bond could mature in 10 years and these bills uh, could mature in uh, 90 days. So you have to roll them over X number of times. And uh, as time goes, this may run into more and more problems. So this is what we call illicit interest arbitrage and that's what the banks are basically doing. And uh, this is <laughs> what happened in the recent crisis also, that these uh, subprime mortgages were packaged, repackaged and so on, and then they went to the commercial paper market and tried to uh, have some uh, uh, some inventive financial tricks. So that is a crime. And there is a punishment because the result of the arbitrage is that the gap closes. However, this involves uh, a lot of volatility, um, instability, and eventually uh, a great financial crisis. So, uh, illicit interest arbitrage is a crime and it makes the positive spread between the interest rate and the discount rate vanish. 
This undermines not just the lucrative monopoly of the banks, which can do this kind of illicit arbitrage, but also the entire financial system. When the discount rate catches up with and surpasses the rate of interest, because this can also happen, that's the inverted yield curve using modern uh, terminology, then panic in the credit markets is the result. The bids for bonds are withdrawn. Bonds, the demand for bonds vanishes. Bond prices will collapse and the rate of interest will shoot up. This, so you see, this temporarily can happen. But because of the great dislocation which is involved, the, uh, like a, 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 a bouncing ball, this will shoot up and overshoot. So all kinds of economic troubles, which we don't have time to go into, but it's a very unstable and very uh, volatile situation. So this will render much of the productive capital of the country submarginal, high interest rates, causing depression. So that's, these are the seeds of depression. This is compressed, and, but uh, that's really not our topic. We just uh, discussed that this is uh, what uh, the uh, original impetus of the establishment of the acceptance house started an uh, uh, avalanche which is uh, still at an early stage but it is exposing the, those villages down there in the valley to great danger because they could be completely uh, swept away by the, uh, the avalanche. I uh, have this favorite quote, it's an old saying of Lombard Street, that's a street in London where original merchants were acting. The, uh, the old saying says that there is no easier profession than that of a banker, provided he can tell a bill of exchange and a mortgage of power. <laughs> Wonderful. And it's another story that most of them can. And it's amazing. This this saying goes yeah, back yeah. 200 years, and we still have a subprime crisis and all that because they purposely try to wipe off the difference between short-term credit and the mortgage. So. Uh, if bankers occasionally flunked this test in the 18th and 19th century, bankers in the 20th and 21st <coughs> centuries didn't even understand what the fuss is all about. That is right. <laughs> they shrugged off the criticism. An asset is an asset, period. Money doesn't stink. It has no quality outside of its quantity. That's all, quantity. You shouldn't print too much because then there's trouble, but as long as you keep the horsey happy to tread out the, uh, the grain, everything is fine. Now, ghosts that used to haunt bankers in their sleep, such as 
assets of dubious quality in the balance sheet, they have been interned forever by uh, paternalistic governments and the safety nets they have invented and imposed on the industry. So that's the current thinking. However, it is doubtful that governments can legislate business risks and asset quality out of existence. These things exist independently of the wishes of governments. The qualitative difference between a genuine bill of exchange, a real bill, <coughs> and a mortgage cannot be denied. <coughs> And if you understand this, the whole secu securitization farce is pointless. Because all it, uh, that <coughs> was involved, they packaged, repackaged, renamed, shuffled, and so on. But there's something interesting happened. I'm sorry, I have to interrupt myself because this is fantastically interesting. A judge somewhere here in a state court ruled that... Uh, is it UBS, the Union Bank of Switzerland, which wanted to foreclose a mortgage? The pool of mortgages. Uh, the judge said. Now, who has? Deutsche. Who? The judge looked at it and said, "Who has the what's the word? Sta who has standing? Who has standing to bring this no, no. The title? Registered. Registered. The deed. The deed. Who has the yeah. deed? Where is the deed? I want to see the deed." And if you show me the deed, I give you the right to foreclose. But not without the deed. And then the union bankers. They could show 10,000 shareholders for one mortgage. They tried to show the right <laughs> of their aggrieved that they were injured by this. They could not produce no, they a could deed. Not a deed. So the judge. It's amazing that there are people with spine in their back still in the judicial. Well, we have to give they, it one day to see if it persists. Uh, or if they don't roll it over to a higher court. What is a deed? The, the, the deed is a title. Um, a papi Romeo Osmutajoiti and property. They couldn't show the deed because they diluted the whole concept out of existence. It existed before packaging and repackaging but now it no longer exists. They forgot to worry about the deed. To, to appoint an agent who would at least symbolically yeah, have stand and hold they it. Forgot it. Forgot they forgot it. They forgot it. They were so cocksure that this is it. They invented uh, nirvana. From now on, it's happiness ever after. That's Perpetual just amazing. Yeah, true. Perpetual motion machine. Okay. Well, all right. Um, now, before you interrupted yourself, hmm? before you interrupted yourself, because you were saying something about packaging the subprime, and then you said, oh, I have to interrupt myself. Yeah, yeah, because I, I couldn't have, and this, I wasn't planning to bring that, that in, that, yeah. but it's relevant to what I'm talking about, and I, 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 it's just too good an opportunity to miss to, to bring that in. And I'm so happy that in this country there was a judge. What, at one time. 
at well, one moment. But they probably oh, so make sure he, that he, he, he will yeah. be the first and to last. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, so just to wind up. There was a story of Sir Henry Moore, wasn't there? In England, in Henry VIII and his... Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> One man's oh, there are lots of instances. Yeah. Yeah. If, you, if you straighten your backbone, then you expose yourself. This is much better. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what most judges are doing, including the Supreme, Supreme Court judges. <clears throat> so, okay, mortgages or loans on real estate require two expensive and time-consuming processes. One is surveying, you have to survey the land and uh, stake out the limits, or, uh, and the second is uh, the search of the title. These, uh, in any real estate deal, is absolutely basic, but time-consuming. And for that reason, you cannot mix up uh, bill of exchange which is characterized by its very fast movement and circulation and a mortgage which is necessarily slow and you can make it move faster because if you do then you compromise the whole process and that's what they try to do with securitization and it's not going to work and they should have known better before they started it they should have known better because this is a 200 years old saying what I quoted, Lombard Street, that uh, banking is the easiest profession provided you can make a distinction between a real bill and a mortgage. <laughs> uh, the quality of an asset cannot be improved by burying it deep inside of the bank's balance sheet or packaging it and repackaging it in uh, the in these uh, uh, security take it off the balance sheet in an SAV that's what they done that's what they, they took done. it off the balance sheet so much the better you know if you told any banker in the 19th century this is going to happen they wouldn't have believed you they said you are crazy you you are dreaming this is not possible. But if he had believed you, he would have told his children, stay in this business. Better days are ahead. Better days Non-disclosure and misrepresentation can only damage the asset. It cannot help. There's no way to help an asset by non-disclosure uh, mystification, obscurantism, misrepresentation. For this reason, illicit interest arbitrage is even more dangerous when practiced by banks. Because the bank has a portfolio which can be hidden. And uh, once it's hidden, that's extremely dangerous if a bank does that. Uh, the conspiracy in which the acceptance house engaged was bad enough, but at least the dubious assets stayed in public view because the bills did circulate. So anybody had the right to say, okay, I'm going to read this, uh, read the small print and consult a lawyer and have his interpretation. If I don't like it, I can go to another lawyer. 
But once the banks put all this junk into their balance sheet, then it's off limits. You have no right to look at them anymore. So this, is, this could be worse. The acceptance house was bad enough, but it could be worse. And it did become worse. The banks came in, and then with this securitization, and that's, I can't see how you can make it worse than that. But, you know, perhaps this is really the end of the line. Okay. So, with this, I finish for today. It's four, four o'clock. If you have questions at the beginning of the next uh, period in half an hour's time, we'll, we'll continue with the discussion. Okay.